Good morning, and thank you, Sarah. My name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are here with us this morning at Redemption uh, Gilbert. How many of you are thankful for mercy that's fresh from God this morning? Man. During that song, I was just like, I really needed to hear that this morning. So, uh, and if that's you, uh, then you're going to love what we talk about this morning. And if that's not you, you're going to love to get to hear that that's a reality for you this morning. Uh, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You can go ahead and, and, and turn there. I don't know if you've ever uh, been invited to something or to somewhere uh, that you felt like, oh, this is like an opportunity or an experience of a lifetime. I just can't miss this thing. And I've, I've actually been pretty blessed. I've had a few of these, um, but my wife and I one time were invited to see the band U2 at uh, Dallas Cowboys Stadium, which was kind of a bucket list for me, not the Dallas Cowboys Stadium thing, sorry if you're a Cowboys fan, um, but U2, I was really excited to see them, and uh, I didn't really know much about it, I just got a call, said, hey, you got tickets to the show, all you have to do is just get yourself there, and I said, okay, we've got points, we're going we're gonna to fly out there, we're going to go, I didn't know what kind of tickets we had, I didn't know where we were sitting or anything, I just know, like, I've always wanted to see them, I'm going to get the chance to see them, so we flew out there, we got to the stadium, and when we went to go pick up our tickets at the will call uh, office desk thing, uh, they gave us not just tickets, but they gave us like a whole packet. And inside the packet was a lanyard and a pass that said VIP access. And I was like, Lauren, we need to grab these and go as quick as we can before they figure out who we actually are, because I'm not a VIP guy. And what was so cool about these passes is that they allowed us access not only to the floor, like right next to the stage, which was incredible. We were on the floor right next to the stage during the concert. Um, but we got access to this special VIP lounge with all these other kind of VIP people in it. And my wife and I were super awkward once we got in there because I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you're, you only know like one person, you're not really comfortable with everybody else in the room. So you're like constantly kind of like bumping into each other. You're like, do you want to go over there? No, we're going to go over here. So we just kind of were standing there and we're going and meeting all these different people and they are introducing themselves as CEOs of companies and presidents of things. And I was like, well, have you ever heard of 710? It's a pretty big deal <laughs> where I'm from. Um, but the highlight of this moment, the highlight of being able to be in this room, at least, at least and especially for my wife, was we're in this room and then these people walked in. So uh, that's me and uh, Chip Gaines and my wife, Lauren, and her sister, Joanna. Um, <laughs> And this was just like an incredible moment for us to get to meet these people. It was an incredible experience, and it was because of an invitation that allowed us access to experience some very important people. And I, I have to tell you that even though we were, we were allowed in there um, and we were invited in there, we still felt like we didn't belong. And I know for some of you, church might even feel like that. Like maybe somebody invited you. We have beautiful people at the door that invited you in, welcomed you in. But there's a part of you that could feel like, ah, they're nice to me, but if they ever found out who I really was or what I've really done or what's really happened to me, they wouldn't be so nice to me. And sometimes we're not just like that about church. We even, we even feel like that way about God sometimes. And if you've ever had that kind of experience, um, that's going to help you actually to work through what we talk about this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Let me just pray, 
and ask God to help us, uh, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Father, I am so thankful for your mercy that is fresh and new this morning. God, I am so thankful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. In fact, your word tells us in the Psalms that you have separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. And in its place, God, in a place of your wrath and condemnation and, God, the punishment that we so rightly deserve and have earned, God, you lavish us with grace upon grace and a love that is steadfast and a kindness and a provision of relationship and hope and joy and peace. God, I thank you for your word, and God, I thank you for the way that you speak. In the beginning, you speak, and life arises, light comes. And God, I'm praying this morning that you would once again speak, and God, that we would be able to actually hear you speak to us. And Father, we need you for that, and so I'm praying for your Holy Spirit to come and to move with power and freedom. So Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to us and allow us to hear you clearly. All the noise, all the distractions, everything that tells us, um, God, that reminds us of what we've done, that reminds us of our failure and reminds us of our struggle. God, I pray that it would be quieted in your love and silenced by your mercy and by your grace, and God, that we would today be overwhelmed at how you, the King, calls out to us. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm excited about our passage this morning. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, actually. Um, we're introduced to this guy. You heard Mark read it. Uh, his name is Mephibosheth. So say that five times fast. Uh, it's the root of his name, um, which is the Hebrew word bosheth. It means shameful uh, or shameful thing, and it, it means to fall uh, into disgrace through failure of, of self. Uh, he is the son of Jonathan. If you've been tracking with us in our We Want a King series, Jonathan and David, you remember, we're great friends. He's the grandson of Saul. Saul was the former king who was pursuing David for over a decade in the wilderness. So he's born into the world as a very important person, but yet now he has this name that means seething dishonor. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but we kind of see why he gets that name. So Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And um, when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. So when he's five years old, his father and his grandfather are killed in battle. So he lives in fear um, because he's been dropped by this nurse. He, he also lives in fear because David could kill, could kill him. That's how Saul would have dealt with people. So why would David not do the same thing? Look at verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
If you remember in the story, David and Jonathan have a profound friendship. And in this moment, David is actually reflecting on that friendship. He goes, you know, had it not been for Jonathan and what he had done for me, there's a good chance I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be king today. So David is actively looking for a descendant of Jonathan that he can bless. This story reveals a really important part of the heart and the character of David. David desires to show a covenantal kindness. There's an Old Testament word, hesed. You'll hear it uh, often in Old Testament stories. It's a covenantal kindness. It is a loyal love or a steadfast love. And this is the kind of love and kindness that David has for Jonathan, and he wants to show it to the descendants of Jonathan, but the descendants also of Saul. So look at verse 2. It was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king said, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, the son of Emil, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar in the house of Machir, son of Emil. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. So Mephibosheth is living in Lodabar. It is a place of barren wilderness. Uh, Debar is a Hebrew word that means word or communication. Lo is a prefix that means no. So he lives in a place uh, called no word or no communication. Uh, It's mostly referred to as a place of no pasture. It's a barren wasteland place. It's It's like a nothingville. And you'll notice in the text that we just read that Ziba had not specified his name, but referred to him as the son of Jonathan, who is crippled in both feet. So he's not called by his name. He's just simply called the one who's lame or the one who is crippled. But there's a, there's a twist we see that the narrator brings that's really important because David calls him by name. And you need to understand and you need to feel the significance of that. The Bible doesn't allow us to hear the tone of David's voice, but the context uh, would, would present the presumption that the king spoke with a gentle or a soft tone, not a harsh, condemning tone. It's a display of grace from King David. It, it, it's not even so much uh, that what he said, uh, but it's what he didn't say. He didn't refer to him how everybody else refers to him. He didn't refer to him as the cripple and as the lame. He didn't even say, my former enemy's grandson. He didn't even say, Jonathan's son. He calls him by his name, Mephibosheth. Nobody ever calls me Mephibosheth. They always call me cripple. They always call me the lame one. So you need to just kind of imagine, just in that moment, Mephibosheth, we're going to see in a moment, it's actually a moment full of fear for him. Because every other king, the culture, the context was 
they would be exterminated because their family was a former enemy. So in this moment, Mephibosheth is not expecting the king to call him by name because he carries this kind of stigma with him everywhere he goes. And some of you, you can relate to that because you know what it's like every time that your name is mentioned, every time you're talked about in the conversation, there's a particular stereotype or there's a, a prejudice or there's a judgment that follows because people don't see you for you. They see you for what you've done or for what's been done to you. When people mention your name, they usually mention a problem that's associated with you. But when the king mentions his name, he calls him son. And the good news here is that a word from the palace offsets a thousand in the streets. I was thinking about this and I was reading through this this morning. So Mephibosheth is called from a place that means no word, no communication. The king sends word to a place of no word. The king sends word to a place that no one ever talks about, to a person that no one ever mentions them by name. He's a good king. Look at verse 7. Do not be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Do not fear is the command most given from heaven in the scripture. In fact, do not fear is written in every single book of the Bible because we all are afraid of something. And David says, I'm going to restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and given that Saul was king, this is no small gift that David is giving Mephibosheth. David could have, he could have just given him a few acres that's like better than Lodabar. He could have given him land that was even closer to where the holy city was. And that would have been grace. That would have been unmerited favor. That would have been more than what the king needed to do. But this is the generous heart of David who goes beyond the letter of the law. I hope you're seeing how David's pushing us forward to Jesus. There's grace upon grace. In John chapter 1, uh, John says this, For of his, that's Jesus, fullness we've all received. See, some of you, you don't think that God gives you out of his fullness. You think God scrapes the bottom of the barrel and you just have to take it and be happy with it. That's not the kind of God we serve. Out of his fullness, the scripture says, we have received what? Grace upon grace. Grace, unmerited favor, great. God says, I know it is. How about some more? How about grace upon grace? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Commentators were talking about this is grace piled on top of grace. You want some more grace? You want some more grace? You want some more grace? Because that's what God is bringing. That's what the king brings. And he says to him, you are going to always eat at my table. Some, some translations say, you'll always eat meals at my table. You shall eat at my table always. It's an incredible invitation from the king. Someone whose name means shameful thing gets invited to eat at the king's table always. Philip Ryken says, it was a mark of great favor to eat at the king's table. An honor bestowed by David upon Mephibosheth to dine at the king's table is an, hour, is an honor, but it's also to enjoy the favor, protection, prosperity, and power of the king. This was not just, hey, every time I'm going to have a meal, you come and have a meal as well too. It's a blessing that goes far beyond that for Mephibosheth. So he's not just brought in to a one-time dinner. 
it's the rest of his life, which a lot of commentators say this would have been kind of like the glory days of Israel, kind of like the best days of Israel. Mephibosheth is there at the table, enjoying the protection, the prosperity, the power of this king. There's a a story of a man who adopted a, a troubled teenage girl. And when he was doing this, all of this man's friends, they all questioned his logic because this girl had a reputation. She was known as being destructive and disobedient and dishonest, and she just had a track record that was just really rough. And and they all said, I don't understand why you're doing this. And one day, sure enough, um, she came home from school. The father wasn't there. And she ransacked the entire house looking for money. And by the time the father got home, she had completely destroyed the house. Uh, the house was in shambles because she was looking for money to steal from her father. And all this man's friends, he all heard about it. They came over, they saw the house, they saw the house was in disarray, and they just began to plead with him, and they urged him. They said, listen, do not finalize this adoption. You do not have to go through this because you are signing up for a lifetime of more of this kind of things. And they just said, you can just let her go. After all, she's not really your daughter. And the father looked at all his friends, and he said, yeah, but I told her that she was so she is. You see, the story here in Mephibosheth is so important for us because God has made a covenant with us to adopt us, to bring us in, to have us at the table, and to enjoy all the benefits of a relationship with him. And just like in that illustration, his covenant, his promise is not invalidated by our rebellion. It's one thing to love us when we're obedient and when we're strong and when we are serving at church and we got our quiet time done this week and we were faithful in prayer and we gave a little bit of our money and we helped out somebody. But what about when we ransack his house and steal what is his? God doesn't look at our frazzled and our broken lives and say, well, when you clean up your act, when you deserve it, then I'll die for you. That's not what the scripture says. While we were yet sinners. When we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Just like David doesn't look at Mephibosheth and he's like, man, if you could learn to walk, I will help you out. If you could just figure it out and be a little bit more mobile, Mephibosheth, so you're not quite a burden on everyone, then I'll welcome you in. Verse 8, we continue through the story. Mephibosheth bowed down and he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me. A lot of commentators will say that his identity was linked to his infirmity. He's physically and psychologically crippled. He's spiritually crippled. That phrase, dead dog, it's a Hebrew expression for an embarrassing piece of garbage. That's how he saw himself. And there's, there's compassion, there's kindness that's coming from the throne, but Mephibosheth can't see it. He can't take it in. Because he's like a lot of us. He just doesn't have the facts straight. Mephibosheth, he lives in ignorance of the covenant that his father, Jonathan, had cut for him. A a, a covenant for just an occasion like this. And what about you? Do, Do you walk around crippled because you've been living in fear of God because you're ignorant of the covenant that was cut for you? 
And because of what you've done or because of what's been done to you, you think, I am just destined to live in Lodabar. I'm destined to live in a place of no word, no communication from God. I'm destined to live in this barren wilderness, this place of no pasture. And there is an inheritance. I've heard it preached about. I've heard it talked about. There's, there's the richness of the kingdom, but no, not for me. Because you feel like if I go to the throne, if I go to the king, he's going to do something terrible to me. A lot of us, we think that way about God. But if, if, I, if I go to him, if I were to ask him, he's just going to take from me. And so the only way that I can get mine, the only way that I can be safe is if I just work and I fight for my own and I try to shape my own destiny rather than trusting the king that you've heard about. So that's the question. How well do you know the one who sits on the throne? Are you fully aware of the kindness of the king, the hesed love of the king? Or are you the hopeless victim of just rumors about God? Like he would never find you acceptable. The, the thing I love about this passage is that the word from the king to Mephibosheth, the first thing he says to him is, do not fear. He calls him by name. I see you. I know you. There's a kindness towards you. There's a steadfast love towards you. There's a loyal love to you. And I can tell, I can see you're not believing it. So let me help you. Do not fear. Let's close out the story in verse 9. The king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for you. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young same named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. His son's name, Micah, in Hebrew, it's a rhetorical phrase. It means, who is like Yahweh. It's a rhetorical phrase because the answer is, there's no one like Yahweh. Paul Westerfield, he says, imagine the gratitude that must have flooded Mephibosheth's soul at the birth of his son. Perhaps he thought, I'd, I'd never even dreamed that I even lived to see this day. Not only have I survived, but I've been richly blessed. I'm a wealthy man. I have an inheritance and the king calls me his son. And now I have a family and God has given me a son. And so whenever I look at the face of my boy, I will never stop asking myself, who is like Yahweh? There's no one like our God. And just as David did with Mephibosheth, our king so graciously invites us to take our place at his table as we are adopted in as sons and daughters. It's the, it's the core of this good news. It's this grace there's a quote that says, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Now, there is an action item for us here, Christian especially. And I think the challenge out of this is to look at David and for us as Christians, us as followers of Jesus, as followers of the King, to say, what would it look like for me in my life 
to extend forgiveness and mercy and blessing and kindness like that in your life. Because there will never be a time in your life when you are more Christ-like or experience the grace of God than when you forgive and extend mercy and blessing to those who curse you. Because when you make a decision to love in that way, you know that it's not you, it's God in you. And his presence is so rich and so real and so close. So the challenge, I think, out of this for us as Christians is to be like David and this week to say, where can I find someone to bless and to show kindness to? And I know that this is difficult because I have people in my life who are like, I hope I never see them again. <laughs> but look how David seeks out the opportunity to bless and to show kindness. It's not easy, and I'm not just talking about flippantly like it is easy, but there is a blessing on the other side of it. And this isn't like, okay, fine, I'll just stop thinking about that person that's really obnoxious to me. This is, I'm going to find a tangible way to extend grace and kindness and blessing to someone in my life who hasn't earned it. And it, there's nothing more difficult, honestly, which is why it requires God, and it's why we will know him in a more beautiful way. We're going to close, and the band's going to come up now. And I want to just close with this. You and I are Mephibosheths. The similarities between his life and ours are just too compelling. Before the Father drew us near to him by his own initiative, we spend our lives running from him in brokenness and shame. And we fear that if we did enter his presence, it would bring judgment upon our heads. And when we finally are trembling at his feet, we hear the words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I'm going to give you everything back in your life that sin has stolen from you. And I'm going to give you inheritance and blessing and riches in heavenly places. And more than that, I want you forever in my presence and I am going to call you my child. And when we struggle with that, we think, why would you ever want to do this? God says to us, because I know your brother, Jesus, and for his sake, I'll do it all on your account. We have to think about our story in light of what Christ has done for us. You see, Mephibosheth is the beneficiary of a relationship with David. He doesn't do anything to earn it. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't have to work for it. He doesn't even ask for it. It's all prompted by the king. We don't go looking for God. God comes looking for us. We aren't even aware that we need God until he begins that in our hearts. We are like Mephibosheth. We are beneficiaries of an active king who starts a relationship with us that doesn't have anything to do with us. It doesn't have anything to do with our ability to act a certain way, but it's because of his great love for his son, Jesus, that he adopts us in grace and mercy, and he invites us in to eat at his table as sons and daughters. And we're simply able to now share in the love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are invited to the table but we don't always think about it as a table. A lot of times we think about it as a desk. If you have ADD like me and you're like, when are we ever gonna talk about this desk in the middle of the stage? Now's your moment. So thank you for tracking and for following along. We think about our relationship with God as a desk. Who uses a Mac, by the way, of course. What happens at a desk? An interview where you have to prove it, 
where you have to convince the other person that you're worthy of an opportunity, that you're worthy of a relationship. And so we live like that. We live like we've got to prove it to God that he will accept us based on what we've done. Or maybe even worse, some of you, you, you think of this desk as like a place of interrogation. Like every time God invites you to the table, he's inviting you to a desk where he's going to interrogate you and make you replay all your failures and all the struggle and all the things that you're addicted to and that hold you down. And so you don't want to go to the table. You don't want to go to the presence of the king because it's an interview. It's an interrogation. It's a place of condemnation. But that's not what we get invited to. You see, the king doesn't invite us to a desk. He invites us to a table. Um, in my family and in the kind of the culture that I grew up in, in this loud Italian culture, I love the dinner table. Uh, in my life, the dinner table has been a place that's uh, loud and super fun. It's a place of feasting. It's a place of friendship. It's a place of laugh, laughter and listening to stories. Because who do you have dinner with? Who do you have meals with? Your friends. People that you actually want to sit with. People that you actually want to eat with. People that you actually want to listen to. I love the table. I love it when we have friends over and we're laughing and when the kids come to the table like, hey, can so-and-so, can they stay over? Do they have to leave? Can they stay just a little bit longer? And they all go hide throughout the house so that you can't leave. You're invited to the table with the king. You're not invited to sit at a table with Chip and Joanna, as great as that would be for some of you. You are invited to the table to sit with Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of everything that exists, including you, by the way. And this king is the smartest, kindest, funniest, most brilliant, beautiful, interesting person that you've ever been with. He's the most caring and compassionate and patient and loyal person that you've ever met. This king who invites you to sit at the table, he can calm storms with just his voice. He can cast out demons. He can raise people from the dead. He can heal any disease and any hurt and any pain anytime he wants. And he is inviting you to sit at the table with him. And, and I think a lot of times we feel like we don't belong or maybe we feel like there's a better invitation that's out there or we act like we have a better invitation out there. I'll never forget when Joanna Gaines walked in the room, my wife like made a beeline, like rushed to her. And she's great. She's done a lot of great things with shiplap, so respect to her. But she's never conquered the grave. 
sells a lot of great stuff at Target, but she's not the great shepherd. Jonathan read Psalm 23 earlier. I didn't know he was going to read that. Thank you, Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you're with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table for me right in front of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and the cup at the table, it overflows. There's so much blessing and so much good in it. The king, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end invites you to sit down at the table with him. Religion says that you have to prepare the table. But Jesus says, no, I'm the one who's prepared the table. So you don't have to be on the clock trying to figure out, how do I get into a relationship with God? How do I get a seat at that table? God's already in motion. He's already done the work. A table's already prepared for you. God is the initiator and the mover on this. And here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing about all of this. God actually delights in having you at the table with him. Because he created you for communion, for relationship. He created you for a table, not a desk. And when we sit down with him, it makes him happy. And when we talk to him and we share our lives with him, it makes him smile. And when we sit with him and we spend time with him and we're at the table with him and we share our hopes and our dreams and our cares and our concerns, he leans in and he says, I love spending time with you. And it's not a table of scarcity. Like some of you think like at any moment, like God's just gonna run out of stuff for you. He's gonna run out of a way to provide for you. But no matter what's going on, there's always enough at the table with Jesus. And maybe the hardest part for you this morning is, is that you're already at another table and you're already sitting with another king. And the question for you is that, is that table, has that king been kind to you? Or has that table turned out to be a lie? Has that king turned out to be a tyrant? And, and, and if what you've gone to for fulfillment and satisfaction and identity and life isn't working, just be honest with God today. And just say, I need to change tables. And today you respond to the invitation from Jesus to find life and love and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and grace at the table with him. And I realize the difficulty because for some of you, there might just be too much shame. You know there's an invitation, but you spent too much time away from the table with Jesus and you've let other things come in and steal your attention and steal your affection and the good news is that the table that Jesus welcomes you to, shame doesn't rule that table. Shame does not rule the table that Jesus sets for you because shame is undone at the table that Jesus prepares for you because the blood of the lamb is in the cup and the broken body of Jesus is on the platter. The Prince of Peace, the risen Savior, is waiting for you at the table. And I realize that some of you there's a voice, there's a voice, there's a word that's telling you that you can't possibly come back to the table with the shape that you're in. 
not what, because of what you've done, not because of what's been done to you. Do not believe the lie of the enemy. Do not believe the lie that says that, well, if you work up just the right apology or if you work up just the right kind of penance or if you work up just the right kind of way to pay God back. If you know the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son, he's rehearsing a speech the whole way home and he gets to the driveway and the dad won't even let him start. He's that uninterested in the forgiveness speech that he doesn't even let him start it. He just embraces him and he says, strike up the band kill the biggest calf we have, let's party because my son is home and we are going to feast at the table. That's the invitation for you this morning. And today, you can respond. And you can say, Jesus, if you are preparing a table for me, I want to sit with you. For those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, um, the crazy thing about this table is we sit with Jesus and the meal is also Jesus <laughs> because there's the bread, which is the broken body of Jesus. The Son of God came and lived among us and he lived the perfect life in full obedience to the Father, a life that we should have lived but never could. And then he shed his blood. That's the cup. And he went to the cross and he was whipped and beat. The scripture says you couldn't even recognize him. He was so mangled. And he was humiliated and mocked and scorned. They spit on him. God had human spit on his face. Not for his sin, not because he rebelled, but because you have and I have. And there was no way for us to be put back together with God. We could never earn that. We could never make our way back to him. That's why he had to come to us. And there is a punishment for our rebellion. And that punishment is death. And so Jesus gave his life to save yours and to save mine. And if you've come to him in repentance and faith, and your full trust is only in the finished work of what Jesus has done, then come to the table and sit with your Savior, sit with the King, and feast on the bread of life, and drink deeply of this cup of blessing that is the blood of Christ that washes you white as snow. If you're a Christian, I invite you just to eat and to drink and to recognize that this table is free but it wasn't cheap and we celebrate the one who has set it the one who sits with us at it we celebrate our king Jesus let's do that now